Heavenly Father, these words written by John under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit for our benefit. So let us benefit today as we pay close attention to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hard to believe, but there is, on an afternoon like this afternoon, but there is something I look forward to in the very depths of the Australian winter each year. Though it's getting cold and wet and miserable in July, I'm always excited because July means the Tour de France. And I have loved this bike race since I was 15 years old. I must say, I'm not one of those people that can watch each stage from start to finish because three weekend, three weeks of 2am finishes is a really brutal devotion. Although I do have a friend that tells his staff they cannot expect anything from him while the tour is on, which I think is illegal. But nevertheless, I love the colour, I love the mountains, I love the scenery, I love the architecture as the peloton rolls through France, I love the romance of the race and its sheer, unrelenting savagery. It is nothing short of magnificent. Now, just about everybody knows that the leader of the Tour de France wears the famed maillot jaune, the yellow jersey. What fewer people know is that they have a short race before the main race that is called the Prologue. It's a time trial in which each rider races against the clock over a very short distance rather than racing each other over a very long distance. And the point of the prologue is to work out who should wear the leader's yellow jersey when the race begins. The prologue sets up all that which follows. Now, the verses that Lisa just read for us are called the prologue to John's gospel. And similarly, they set up all that which follows. They establish who is preeminent in what will come next and they establish the reasons why he is preeminent we don't know his name but we are given a few nicknames so it's obvious to us that it's talking about Jesus because he is preeminent but before we get to Jesus it's worth mentioning one other unnamed participant of importance and that is the author of the prologue the author of the whole gospel or biography of Jesus and that of course is John Jesus' best friend, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved as you love a best friend, the one to whom Jesus entrusted the care of his own mum while he hung, beaten and bleeding from the cross upon his execution. John chapter 19, verse 26, he says to Mary, Dear woman, here is your son, John. And then to John in the very next verse, John, here is your mother, Look after her. It is such a heartachingly human moment between Jesus, his best friend John, and his beloved mother Mary. And so what we have in John's Gospel is not merely an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, but a deeply personal portrayal of a saviour. Now, there are lots of deeply personal accounts on the market. I mean, the Tour de France is a beautiful, deeply human story that happens every year. So what's so special about John's one? What's the point of difference that we should pay close attention to it once more? I mean, I get that it matters to John. Why does it matter to me? Well, to answer that question, we need to go to the end very quickly, which is actually where we left off last week before returning to the prologue. But at the end, John chapter 20, verse 31, John admits he could have written much more, like books and books and books. But these, he says, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. 
Friends, that is the point of John's gospel. And that's why we will study it slowly and carefully and attentively in bursts over a number of years in all likelihood. Because by believing in John's presentation of Jesus, we might have life in his name. So pay attention, folks. But in the time left today, I'd like to look at this prologue under three banners. The Word, the Word in the beginning, and the Word in the world, before we settle on the difference that makes to our lives. And so firstly for today, the Word. Now some of you will know that is also known as the Logos in the Greek, which is the original language in which the New Testament was written. So who or what is the Word? I mean, we get that it's talking about Jesus, but why is he called the Logos? Why is he called the Word? Well, that term, the Word, has um, kind of clear uh, cachet to any Old Testament readers amongst John's first readers. I mean, the connection to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is very clear. But more broadly in the Old Testament, the Word referred to God's powerful and effective action in creation, in deliverance, even in judgment. It was the Word of God that gave understanding to the prophets as to the mind and will of God. And it even became personified in Proverbs chapter 8, where the wisdom of God is spoken of as if it were a person. But the idea also had kind of cultural currency in Greek culture. The logos, or the word, was thought of as the the shaping or directing principle of the entire universe. So Philo of North Africa described the logos as the captain and pilot of the universe. But you see, in Greek culture, the Logos was, was never a person and certainly never a person who entered history in time and space and matter. So it's quite unlike this word. And I guess most simply, if you think about the idea of the word, it really is about communication, isn't it? We use words to say stuff, to convey meaning, to make sense, to communicate. Of course, people have different preferences for communication. I don't know what yours was that you shared with the person next to you. FaceTime, carrier pigeon, whatever it was. Personally, when it comes to preferences, I really don't like the phone. So if we speak on the phone and it seems or it sounds awkward, it probably is, and it's entirely my fault. (laughs) So I'm just apologising in advance. I much prefer face-to-face. I wonder if you realise there is a growing tendency for people to break up romantic relationships like boyfriend-girlfriend stuff via SMS. And you can even find websites which provide break-up SMS messages listed by the number of characters you have to enter. For example, have I told you lately how much I am in love with you? No? Well, think about that and have a great life. It's 98 characters. It gets worse, let me tell you. Uh, For example, this one, the only thing worse than being alone is being with you. That is a very bare 57 characters. Last one for tonight, I get so emotional when you're not around. I think the emotion is called happiness, 83 characters. I think your reaction is entirely appropriate because they're not classy, are they, at all? Fleeing the country, escaping, I mean, there's a measure of class to that, but this is not classy. Now, let me say, young ones, when you break up with someone, you do it face to face and you say something like this. I am genuinely sorry about this. It was good to get to know you. I have learnt a lot from being with you 
and I want the very best for your future. Because breaking up is hard to do. You do not need to add coldness or cruelty to it. It's important information, so you need to communicate it carefully and thoughtfully and personally. Now, friends, don't you reckon that's the reason why Jesus is called the Word in John chapter 1? Because he is God's most careful, most thoughtful, and most personal mode of communication to the creatures he so loves. Jesus is God's way of communicating the most important information there is, like the incredible lengths that he has gone to to bring us back into right standing and relationship with himself. But it's not just about communicating information about God. Jesus is the way God communicates his very self. Do you understand? It's not just information. God is saying something about his very being. By sending Jesus. And friends, that is why it's right for us to be preoccupied with Jesus, why we pay so much attention to what he said and did in the Gospels, how the Old Testament looked forward to his coming, how the New Testament explains everything that he did, because he is the Word. And in fact, he always has been the Word. He was the word in the beginning, which is our second point for today. And you pick that up from verse 1. You see, we've got a long way so far, haven't we? Verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And John's readers, I imagine, and maybe a few of us as well, hear that verse, and our kind of Bible antenna just go ping, because it instantly reminds us of the very first verse of Genesis the first verse of the Old Testament, the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. And so what John does for us, setting up all of that which follows, is unmistakably insist that in the beginning was also Jesus, that he was right alongside God the Father in the creation of the world. Because you know when Genesis 1 says God made the heavens and the earth, it's referring to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's why when later in that chapter when humans are created, God says, let us make mankind in our image, not let me make mankind in my image. The diversity of humanity mirrors the unity and the diversity within God himself. But friends, we don't even need to infer all that from John's parallel of Genesis 1 verse 1 with his own opening line because John goes on to say it outright. Not only was the word Jesus with God, still in verse 1, the word was God. With God in the beginning was God from the beginning. He is no created being. He was not made by God. He didn't first exist when he popped into our world as a baby born in Bethlehem. He always has been an eternal being. And an eternal being who by his father's side created all things. Like intricately and intimately and powerfully involved in the creation of the world and everything within it, whatever the mechanics exactly of that process, which, of course, Christians are free to differ about. And so, friends, that point and the point before it go together to show us that Jesus was God, because if he was there in the beginning, that means he's God, not a creature made by God. And if he created life and everything else and nothing has been made without him, and you can see that point being made positively and negatively there in verse 3, that also means that Jesus is God. 
with natural consequence that he has rights over our lives as God and as our creator. And you may not know that blood has been spilled and I suspect rivers has been spilled on this question of the divinity, the godness of Jesus. Defining church councils have met to discuss the issue. In the 4th century, there was a council in Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey, and it met to discuss this issue. And an Egyptian guy called Arius said that Jesus was not eternal. He was not around at the beginning, and that the Father called him into being out of non-existence before the world was created, which makes Jesus more than a man, but less than God. And together we say, dodgy, right? Dodgy. But because Arius was like a 4th century Lady Gaga or Riri, he put dodgy theology to these very catchy pop tunes so that even the workers down at the docks could remember. And soon everybody was singing, Jesus, more than a man, but less than God, like some kind of primitive hip-hop track. And so they had this big conference. I'm not making this up, this happened, right? They had this big conference, Arius... And I guess it's some of his homies, some of his backing singers or some people. They wanted to push their line at this council. Jesus, more than a man, less than God. And most of the others, they wanted to go for a moderate, a balanced view of Jesus. Let me say that is always a dangerous path because Jesus is exceptional, isn't he? He's not moderate. In years to come, I expect, if we've not already, to feel immense pressure to moderate, to minimise our view of Jesus and his person and his work And people will say, you know, come on, we Christians, we should be free to differ on this one. And you know what, friends, on some matters we are free to differ, but not on this one, not on this one. And we need to see it is a very old thing to want to balance and moderate Jesus. In the fourth century, they wanted to opt for a compromise and say Jesus had a similar essence to God. He's similar. But then a righteous guy called Alexander An even more righteous guy called Athanasius got up and said, nah, nah, not similar, same. Jesus is not of a similar essence, he's of the same essence. None of this more than a man, less than God stuff. He's nothing less than God himself. Now you might be sitting there in the humidity thinking, geez, Scott's getting sweaty. (laughs) Really, what difference does it make? Well, it's only salvation. That's the only thing at stake here. So in the words of Athanasius in the 4th century, if Christ were not fully God, he could not grant salvation upon the repentant. You see, the only difference it makes is one of salvation. So it's important to get it right. The infinite sins, think about this, of fallen humanity could only be shouldered by someone who is himself from infinity, who is himself infinite. The sins committed by people across all time could only be shouldered by one who himself has existed before time. A perfect person, not that there ever has been one, is only an acceptable and appropriate sacrifice for one other person, one sinner. Not even enough for the people in this small room, let alone all the people who would turn to Christ. Angels don't fit the bill, they can't do it. Just ministering spirits sent to Christians. So it has to be God. Jesus has to be God if salvation is going to work. In the beginning was the word Jesus. The word was with God, creating all things, giving them life. And the word was God. He is not a creature. He has always been. The word was in the beginning. But of course the word, the logos, Jesus, though he's still yet to be named as Jesus by John 
I don't know if you noticed that. He didn't stay in the beginning. It's not like his work was done with creation or even the sustaining of all life that he had made. He came into the world. And so thirdly today, the word entered the world. His entry into the world was presaged. It was prepared for and anticipated by John the Baptist. You can see that in verses 6 to 9 and verse 15, but we'll look at that in more detail next week with Pat. But verse 9 summarizes it neatly for us. Have a look. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Verse 10 continues it. He was in the world. Verse 14 puts it just so memorably, but powerfully and poetically, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God put skin and fingernails on and lived with us. Or as the older versions, picking up the imagery of Exodus say, he tabernacled with us. The word was in the world. Jerry Seinfeld, the um, American comedian, he's got this joke about aliens coming to Earth and the very first thing they see is a human's walking dog and um, they kind of see the the dog out in front and then they see the humans waiting around for the dog and then they see the human picking up the dog poop and putting it in a little dog bag and... And it's like, which life form do the aliens conclude is in charge here? And of course it has to be the dog, doesn't it? It looks like it's the dog. And I really think that's what aliens would find if they came to Earth. And actually, I do think that dogs do seem to be in charge in our society. It's very odd. It's actually quite funny when Jerry Seinfeld tells the joke, but that's another story. <laughs> now, what, what would Jesus find? This incomparable agent of creation, this eternally existing word when he came to earth. He's not recognised. Did you see that? His devastating reception is revealed in verse 10 and 11. Let's read that together. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. In fact, to say that his own did not receive him, which specifically refers to Israel, but I guess to humanity more broadly, I reckon that's a little on the gentle side, John, don't you? I mean, his own killed him. The author of life, they drove seven-inch nails into his hands and feet and hoisted him up on a Roman cross to die a humiliating, painful death, placing a crown of thorns upon his head in vile mockery of him. And though we weren't there, if we had have been, I wonder if we'd have joined in, like I suspect that I might have. But that's to get a little bit ahead of ourselves and a little bit ahead of the story so far. And in any case, friends, that is not the only reception that he was given. For verse 12, some received him, some recognised him and believed in his name. And for those people, Jesus' arrival into our world, his taking on flesh and skin and fingernails and living among us does three remarkable things for us according to john in these verses he firstly i mean i'm glad you're sitting down for this right he firstly makes us children of god he makes us children of god though we have no natural right to be considered children of god because the eternal word came among us we can be grafted into god's household and his family being born of him. It's a spiritual birth, of course, not a physical, natural birth, but it entitles us to all that you would expect as children of such a gracious father, including his attention. 
Wow. I'm glad you were sitting down for that. Jesus came into the world so that we might be born of God. He makes us children of God should we believe in his name. He furthermore brings us grace. He is full of grace, says verse 14, and it is going to be delightful, I think, to see that as we unpack this early stage of his ministry in the next 10 weeks. In verse 16, it says, We have received grace upon grace, grace in place of grace. In verse 17, the grace that he brings fulfills and surpasses even the grace within the law that was given by Moses that we might not be treated as our sins deserve. He came into the world to make us children of God and he brings us more grace. And then lastly, he shows us God. The word became flesh, verse 14, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. In the beginning, he was with God and was God, but now he has come among us. So we have seen God, says John. I mean, verse 18 is explicit, isn't it? No one has seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. If you want to know God, you look, or even better, you listen to the word who came into the world. He makes us children of God. He gives us more grace and he shows us God because he himself is God. Now, friends, uh, there are just two things to talk about what this might mean for us as we finish up tonight. The first is that if Jesus is the word who was with God and was God and who came into the world, then if we want to know God, we go to him and listen. Now, if you stop to think about it, knowing God is about the most important thing a human being can devote their time to as a creature within creation. I find it extremely odd <laughs> that most human beings put more effort into researching their next car purchase than they do into understanding God. That is a weird thing that happens all the time. But if we are to understand God or know him, we don't, we don't try to reason our way up. We don't listen to any and every funky new philosophy that comes along, every, every new guru that pops up on YouTube, although to be honest, there's probably not that much that's new under the sun. Nor do we insert our own ways of finding God. Where we come from, you hear people say stuff like, man, the ocean is my cathedral. You know, when I'm surfing and swimming, the ocean's my cathedral. And I want to say, there are sharks in your cathedral. You know, watch out. Or people might say, I find God in nature. Or he's there in the music. Or even in sex. Or flying an aeroplane. Or whatever, And I think there is no doubt that there are deeply spiritual dimensions to ocean swimming and surfing and mountain hiking and music and sex and soaring through the sky and many other things. Of course, there's spiritual dimensions to those things. But the way God eminently speaks to us is through his son and the testimony to him in scripture, which is why the Bible is so important to us. We're not just like a really dated ancient book club. But this is the way that we get to know God in the person of his son. And if you want to know God, and I reckon you should want to know God, then listen to the word who was with him from the beginning, but who came into the world to show us God. 
And I think the second thing this passage impresses upon us this evening is to receive Jesus and to recognize him and to believe in him and in his name as it's presented to us. You see, if you think Jesus is just a good teacher, can I humbly and respectfully suggest to us, suggest to you that you don't recognize him? You think he is just a great leader, then you don't recognize him. You think he is a great miracle worker, then you don't recognize him. You think Jesus is just a great example of a life well lived, a moral life, or even a great example of sacrificial love, then still you don't recognize him. You think he is a great prophet, you don't recognize him. You think he's a famous dead guy from history, you don't recognize him. And when you want to moderate, compromise, or minimize your view of Jesus, nor do you recognize him then. And it's not that unlike the people in Jesus' day who similarly didn't recognize him, and some of them ended up killing him. And so instead we want to approach our study of him with an open heart, not so that we can say, I've mastered John's gospel, but so that John's Jesus can master us. And even better, that we might receive life in his name. And so, friends, as we set out on this careful, attentive investigation of the life of Jesus, as described by his best human friend, John, it does behove us to pay attention. And it's just nice to use the word behove from time to time as well. (laughs) It means to listen well. We need to listen well. For the word is God's eminent message and communication of himself. In the beginning was the word. He was with God and he was God. He came into the world and though we did not recognize him, if we do, he makes us God's children. He gives us more grace and he shows us God because he is God himself. Let's pray together as we finish. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you for the word, the Lord Jesus, your preeminent communication of the most important information, how we can be right with you. But actually not just information, a communication of your very self, your very being. And uh, we ask that you might help us to pay attention, to listen well, uh, to recognize Jesus for who he is, that we might be your children, that we might get more grace, and that we might see you in all your glory. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.